On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be talking about Canada's marriage rates. They are going down and down and... (whistles) Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Does it matter? And why is this happening? We're going to talk about that. Also, it's been 15 years now since Bob Young bought the Hamilton Ticats. They've lost in the playoffs again this weekend. No championship. Is Bob Young a good owner or a bad owner? 15 years, no championships, but there is a team. Which way does it fall? We'll talk about all this coming up on the podcast. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Does it ever seem to you as though there are fewer and fewer people getting married these days? That maybe you're attending fewer weddings? Now, some of that may be the fact that you're of a certain age and you either, you know, at one time you and all your friends got married and then there was this long spell where you didn't have to go to weddings and then your kids' friends started getting married and you were back in the mix. But if you're in between, then maybe you're not noticing. But if it seems as though not as many people are actually tying the knot, well, it seems right. You are correct. There are apparently fewer people in this country getting married, but not just fewer people getting married. New numbers are suggesting people, fewer people are in committed living together relationships of any kind right now in this country. Begs the question why, and it begs the question what If there's a problem with this, maybe there's no problem, but if there's a problem, what would that problem be? Peter John Mitchell is a senior researcher with Cardus. He has authored a study called Living La Vida Lonely. It's a great title. Uh, Peter, thanks. Peter John, thanks for doing this today. Scott, thanks for having me on. Uh, You know what? If I even didn't have to read the rest of the report, the title alone made it worthwhile. So uh, good job on that one. Um, Why does this matter or does it matter? Does, Does it make a difference that we have fewer people living together, married together, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think this trend holds true uh, across the age groups. We look specifically at young adults, and we, uh, in one sense, on a, on a personal level, it doesn't matter if this is what people want. Um, uh, choosing to live unpartnered is just as valid as, as choosing to live in a partnership or to, to being married. Um, what we're finding, however, though, uh, looking at other polls, and our, our uh, results were based on the census, but looking at other polls, uh, we see that of those who are unmarried in those age groups, um, about 54% said they'd like to be married someday. So in some sense, we have a, a, at least a portion of people that would like to get married and sense that they're, they're not, uh, for whatever reason, not being able to achieve the kind of relationship they're looking for. And in that way, it does raise uh, some issues um, of, of personal frustration and perhaps some of those other contributing factors. On a larger sense, um, it could have uh, some uh, uh, um, some concerns for the for the larger, uh, even national level. Um, as we uh, are are partnering less, and and as we do partner, we tend to be partnering at older ages. It means that we're having fewer children, mm. and of course, this uh, does affect our things like our fertility rate. We don't uh, have enough children to replace our current population, so we rely on immigration to kind of fill in the gap. But um, obviously, lower fertility contributes to concerns about our being able to, uh, uh, you know, uphold our uh, social keep, safety. Yeah, net. keep the programs going. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but the point is, and we've got a lot of things to get to here, but people have not given up on the concept. It's that there are challenges that they're facing, and we'll get to these, of why they are not doing it right now. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at some of the polling numbers, what I'm hearing from young people is that marriage is nice. 
um, but maybe not necessary, but they still haven't lost uh, the idea that uh, that marriage is something that's valued and at least uh, a positive contributing factor to, to family life. And so, yeah, they are facing a number of different barriers. Um, um, we know that uh, the trip and the, the road, the pathway into adulthood is becoming elongated. It's, it's taking longer to reach the traditional um, sort of markers of adulthood like homeownership and and those things. And as uh, young people are spending longer in school, they have to to get credentialed, to get stable jobs, and it's harder to find stable employment. Uh, the housing market is, as you know, uh, quite difficult to enter as a young person. And what we're hearing through polling is that um, young adults would prefer to be financially stable before entering long-term relationships. And that's not surprising at all, Peter John, because we've, as adults, and, and our parents have been telling us for ever. Get, make sure you've got some money, be stable, try and get your debts paid off before you do this. They're only following the advice they've been given. I think there's a certain amount that, of that is, is, is certainly true. It's a combination of taking longer to get there. And I think also, um, as this kind of elongated path into adulthood is happening, it's kind of actually starting in the teen years. And there is um, a psychologist in the U.S. that suspects that... Um, almost this idea of helicopter parenting, or I, I think a great term is uh, curating our kids into adulthood, where we're minimizing any kinds of risk and trying to mm. give them all the things they can to succeed. And one of the, it's a, it, the upside is uh, finding better success, I guess, or getting to the right school. The downside is when we reduce risk among uh, among people that we might be actually uh, harming them in terms of taking uh, responsibility or taking risks. Uh, and you, that may affect uh, some of these mile markers as well that uh, that we kind of see in adulthood. In this report, you write that 60% right now in Canada, 60%, 6 percent of those under 34 are single. And when I say single, I mean living arrangement single. They may have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but they are single. Uh, that seems like a huge, huge number compared to whatever, not even that long ago. Yeah, it is a big number, and we've seen that increase uh, in in 20 years, up from about 50 to 53 percent. So this is a definitely trending upwards. This uh, living alone or living outside of of a partner. At the same time, what we're also seeing is that more young people are living at home longer. So if you think about the 25 to 29 age group, about 25% of uh, young adults in that age group are living at home. Either mm. they've uh, moved out and they've had to return back to home, or uh, they've just never left. And some of that is financial. I think some of that also may be that there are caregiving responsibilities, or there are um, also expectations, cultural expectations about how the generations uh, interact and, and live together. And certainly we know that multi-generational households are increasing as well in Canada, so that may be part of the trend. So it may not be... Uh, we, we Sometimes we think of like a failure to launch type of scenario. That may not necessarily be the the whole story there. I think there are a number of factors that are contributing to that. Uh, Peter John, in that study, you mentioned that you write this, and this is a quote from your piece. Canadians have forgotten what marriage is and why it matters. Let's go back to that for a second. What what why does it matter if it does? Well, I'd say marriage uh, does matter because it combines. Uh, uh, emotional intimacy, parenthood, uh, sexual intimacy, uh, economic cooperation, all these things into what's uh, um, intended to be a, a permanent relationship. And I think the benefit of, of, of that that we see in the literature um, is that there tends to be associated benefits with, with health and uh, economic benefits as well, with uh, married people able to uh, leverage their income 
towards savings and towards a kind of long-term investment, that kind of thing. Um, as I said, there is some health benefits. We were pretty surprised. We did a, a study, a literature review a couple of years ago, just looking at the health benefits from different peer-reviewed studies and uh, lots of uh, benefits from uh, higher survival rates from cancer, higher survival rates for uh, heart disease. And mm. part of that may just be having that partner in your life that uh, that tells you to get off your butt and go to the doctor. <laughs> that may be part of it. Um, that could but there be. is something about that, that kind of partnership that does seem to correlate with, uh, with some benefits. And I've heard those comments very often about children of parents who are in two-parent households versus a single-parent household, that the chances for health and for success and financial freedom and all those kind of things, all those things I've heard that very often. I hadn't heard that necessarily, though, just with each other's partner. And does it matter in with what you found? Does it matter if they were married or common law? Is it as long as there's two people in the household, or does it have to be married? Um, it um, it sort of depends on some of the studies that you look at, but there certainly is a marriage benefit. Um, and part of that is that despite the divorce rates, and uh, we don't actually keep a divorce rate, a national divorce rate in, in Canada any longer. Uh, the last year that we collected divorce rates was around 2008. At that time, it was about 40% divorce rate. So um, despite that sounding high, actually marriages tend to be more stable than uh, cohabitating relationships or common law relationships. And part of that is intuitive and in that not everybody in a common law relationship thinks the same way or enters that relationship the same way. It's a very diverse group. Um, obviously, some people would choose uh, not to get married simply as a trial run to kind of check things out. Some people simply just want to eschew the idea of, of, of marriage altogether. And other folks tend to uh, drift into, uh, uh, into cohabitating relationships. And sometimes, actually, when researchers are, are uh, surveying the population and asking, well, when did you move in together, sometimes it... Um, Respondents have a little trouble trying to you know, kind of sort out, like, well, when, when did we move in together? Because our toothbrush moved over, and then maybe some clothes, and then we moved in together. Um, and so those are very different styles, and they're very different reasons why people get into cohabitating relationships. And certainly, we all know couples that have uh, lived together unmarried years and years and years. But when we look at the overall data, that's the trends that we that we see. You did mention, though, back shortly after we started talking, that many, or at least the majority of the people say that they would like to get married someday. And I was fascinated by that answer because it does seem as though we have, in a lot of ways, devalued marriage for the reasons you just said. If you don't have to get married, if it's not societally shameful now to live with someone else, I don't think anyone, uh, not too many people anyway, describe it as living in sin like they used to. If that's an option now for a lot of people, why get married? And so I'm a little surprised that people still have that view that they would like to. Yeah, and certainly, um, uh, yeah, yeah, certainly, I, I think there, when we do some polling, and, and we've done our own uh, our own polling as well on this to try to understand some of the attitudes, um, certainly there is uh, some positive associations with marriage. We certainly know that not every marriage is a healthy marriage or a happy marriage, and that does affect opinions as well. But for the most part, um, I, I think there is still some positive uh, sentiment around marriage, although it's not seen as an imperative as it once was. Um, and so I think that's where we're, where we're seeing the difference. So when we talk to people and ask them, well, do you think marriage is an institution, uh, fewer people are sure that that's really a social institution or that serves us um, a social function. And I think this is part and part of us um, kind of seeing uh, our relationships more as personal relationships and seeing the romantic side of relationships and not really thinking too much about what the public invocations are of stable relationships or stable marriages. And that's something that uh, I don't think we necessarily talk a lot about 
and uh, and that might be in part why um, why we're not really giving much thought to it uh, these days, as much as perhaps we were in the past. Uh, his name is Peter John Mitchell. He is a senior researcher with CARDIS. One more time, the report is called Living La Vida Lonely, and you can actually find it online. You can look it up. It is well worth a read. There's a lot of, uh, even if you want to gloss over the reading part, there's graphs and there's things that you can look at there that will uh, break this down. Peter, John, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Don, thanks for coming in. This weekend... Big loss for the Ticats. Thought a lot of people figured that after last weekend's blowout over BC that this was finally going to be the year that the Grey Cup drought might end this year. It's been 19 years now, but this was going to be the time. They looked good. They looked like they were coming together. And then they go to Ottawa and uh, not so much. They got smoked. They got smoked. They um, And they didn't look good at all. I mean, as great as they looked last week, they looked this week. They it, just look it, lost. Interesting uh, reading the analysis after the game this week uh, and the accounting for all of the talent and the good players that they didn't have playing. They didn't have them last week either. Fair point. They looked very good without those guys last week. And, this, and, and yesterday that's why they lost. What you had in this game, uh, a couple things. You had to be playing on the road, which makes a difference. Ottawa was playing at home, but also you have a team in Ottawa that is coached exceptionally well. You had a quarterback that outplayed Hamilton's quarterback. You had great receivers who played well. You had an offensive line that played. I mean, everything they did was great. And this is the fourth time in four games this year that Ottawa beat Hamilton. You can't do anything but say they deserved it. They deserved. They won. They played four times and they won four times. You can't do better than that. And Don, the gap, maybe not in points, but certainly in the last three, the gap got bigger and bigger and bigger. Ottawa pulled away rather than Hamilton caught up. You would think that the um, that you would start sorting out what the other guy was doing to you to win all the time, and 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 well, perhaps, Ottawa was Ottawa was doing that. Ottawa was well, sorting it out. But I'm saying you would think the Ticats coaching staff could say, this is where they're killing us. And I didn't analyze it. So maybe they killed them in a different way every time, but you have to be able to react. Um, but here's the thing. You, even up to halftime yesterday, Ottawa came out and their offense was just going great guns. Hamilton may have made some adjustments on defense, but they made no adjustments that slowed Ottawa down in the second half. And, well, turnovers don't help either. Turnovers don't help, but y- y- they did nothing that made it look like it was harder for Ottawa in the second half. There was no, there was no, no, no changes did anything to make it more difficult for Ottawa. Um, to prove that halftime can make a big difference in a football game, uh, Western going to the Vanier Cup and were tied 17-all with Saskatchewan at halftime and blew them out in the second half. It's a, big, it, it's a huge thing. It's a right? huge you've thing. Got, you've got 20 minutes to say, here's what we're going to do to be effective, and here's, you know, the offense can do it, the defense can do it, and Ottawa don't know what they're going to come back with because they, they're the ones that had the success. So they don't want to change it. So, so they're not changing anything, but they're not sure what Hamilton might want to do to adapt to uh, – to um, circumvent what they're doing and finding success with. So, yeah. I Well, let me ask you a very broad question now because uh, this game marked the end of Bob Young's 15th year as owner of this team. He bought them in 
the spring of 2003. So they've had all those seasons now, including 2018. So Bob Young has now been in there since 2003. Since he took over, six general managers, seven head coaches, none with a winning record. June Jones is the closest. He's at 500. All the rest have losing records. I don't know how many assistant coaches have been through here. 18 different guys have started at quarterback. You had a stadium fight that was nasty, and we all know that, and don't really know exactly. It's impossible to say what was the effect on the city, but certainly there are people who still are sour about the way the stadium thing went. Zero championships. But for all that negative side, there is a team here where there in all likelihood would not have been a team without Bob Young. So is Bob Young a good owner or is he not a good owner? Without Bob Young, we might not have the Ticats. That's what I mean. We almost for sure you would not have the Ticats. That makes him a pretty good owner in my mind. Bob Young, I don't believe is, and I don't know, but I'll surmise that Bob Young hasn't made a whole lot of the decisions on who coaches the Ticats, who's the general manager of the Ticats, and uh, what players are signed. I will agree with you a thousand percent. And I, I think he has been very generous with his, uh, with his money in uh, making this thing work because the move to Guelph wasn't much fun, I'm sure. And um, I, can, I can tell you being displaced from your home stadium is no fun. Um, so I think Bob Young has been very patient, perhaps to a fault, but I don't think he's made any of the decisions on any of the personnel you just talked about. And that's 100% fair because he hasn't. I don't think that Bob has hired a coach. I don't think Bob has hired a general manager. I don't think that's, I think he has put people in positions to make those hirings. He's not a meddling owner by all Absolutely not. But now on the flip side, a former owner of the Ticats would have been a meddling owner. Harold Ballard, when he was here, was a incredibly meddling owner. I don't know. I can't remember how much he meddled with the Ticats. He certainly meddled with the Leafs. But. It was in his nature too, but he won a great cup. But, okay, but regardless, let's say he hadn't won that Grey Cup. If you had been a meddling owner who hadn't won a Grey Cup in a whole bunch of years, people would have been critical, I think. And if you're not a meddling owner, my point is this. I agree with you. There is almost certainly no Ticats franchise any longer if Bob Young doesn't buy it and doesn't keep it and doesn't pay the bills and everything else. And for that, anybody who's a Ticat fan... Absolutely, I think, has to be appreciative of what he's done. It's cost him a lot of money, I understand. At the same time, if you are the boss, if you are the owner, if you're the person in charge, ultimately, does the buck not stop with you that your franchise now has, in a nine-team league, a league that was eight teams for a bunch of those years, is now 19 years, no, 15 years, pardon me, was 19 without a championship, but under your watch, 15 years without a championship, does that not land on your doorstep, ultimately, that's, the decisions to put the right people in place are not clearly being made. At least it doesn't look like it. Well, I, I guess a responsibility has to lie anywhere. It might be that um, um, you he has to make sure he hires somebody that can get the job done for him So because he's not meddling. And whoever that is, I mean, has to be accountable, I would say. I mean, the Ottawa Red Blacks have been in the league five years, been to the Grey Cup three times. Yep. Um, have the same general manager. Who was fired by the Ticats under Bob Young. Ha- 
who um, now again, Bob Young did not fire him, but it was under Bob Young's ownership that that general manager who has built the Ottawa into the team that Hamilton can't beat and that has gone to the last three of the last four Grey Cups, three in the five years of their existence. That's a that's a Hamilton general manager that was run out. I would say Bob Young. Um, has complete and total faith and trust in the guy that hires and fires all that personnel. I have a hard t- I really do have a hard time. I think Bob Young, quite frankly, is by all accounts, I don't know him well. I've talked to him a number of times over the years, not lately. Uh, I, I have every reason to believe that Bob Young is a genuinely good person. I really do. I think that Bob Young is one of those guys that is, he may, there's very few billionaires, I would say, that probably are the quality of human being that Bob Young is. I I don't, I don't mind saying that at all. I think that's absolutely correct. I believe that Bob Young is a good, genuine human being. I just don't know that his football team, let me back up. His football team, with the resources that it's been given, with the new stadium, with everything else, it should be doing better. It should have championships better. He should be wearing, which I believe he desperately wants, he should be wearing a gray cup ring. I think he'd dig deep to get nice rings if, they, uh, when the, if and when the day comes. I bet he would. I bet he would because I, I think, I don't even know, I have, well, I don't know if the word generous is the appropriate word here. But again, it strikes me that Bob Young is a generous guy, certainly with the community, because he has put money into this team to keep it going. And his story about his brother and why he bought the team and why he's keeping it going, it's a terrific human story. It's a great story. It's a terrific human story. And I applaud Bob Young for that. I think that Bob Young deserves a lot of applause and a lot of credit for that kind of stuff. I just fail to see in an eight, nine team league and both are, both are accurate over the course of nine now, but how you can continually, look, they, they haven't had a year that I would describe as a good year yet under his ownership. Mediocre is the best. 10 and eight is the best year you've had. And this is, Don, they played, they play in the East Division. The last number of years, the East Division has been horrible. You can't help almost but make the playoffs in the East. It's an accomplishment not to make the playoffs because it's so much harder not to make it than to make it. Well, let's let's speak to the obvious point. First of all, for 10 of those years, there were, there were only eight teams in the league, yeah. I believe. And two didn't make it. And um, of the last five, the new team has been to the Grey Cup three times. So that should tell it's you. Harder, mathematically, it's harder not to make the playoffs in the CFL than it is to make it. You, it, it's, it's, it is very difficult not to make it now. I also think he deserves to hold a great cup. I agree with and you. And host one. I, I agree. And he hasn't hosted one of those under his, um, his ownership either. No, that's a, that's a different scenario because that has, I don't, I don't put the ownership, uh, sorry, the, uh, hosting of a great cup at this point onto Bob Young's shoulders yet because he had... The stadium thing. The, the no, I said deserved, though. The deserved. I, I, I agree with you. The stadium's been open a while. And they are now past the litigation phase that was apparently holding them back from doing it. I agree with you. I would. I think Bob Young deserves to be host, and I think he would be a terrific host of a great cup game. I think uh, there are very few people around the CFL that I've ever come across that don't have kind things to say about Bob Young, that don't feel good about Bob Young. There are very few people that I've come across who go, you know, they're frustrated and they, like us, I think have questioned 
why his team has not been a vastly superior team based on the resources and based on what he has provided. And I think those are fair questions. I don't think, I don't think that questioning the result mitigates or criticizes the man. I think those are two different things. You can be a very good man and have a team that does far worse than it should have. And I think we can see that in ownership elsewhere. No good deed goes unpunished, and he's done a lot of them. Uh, that might be part of what backfires. I mean, but he's a very successful businessman. So most guys that are successful business guys um, have had to make difficult decisions over their careers. And um, now, now that said, there's there's all kinds of very wealthy people that buy sports franchises um, that don't find the same success in their sports franchises they do their building and. The NFL, every major, every major league in North America is is a train wreck of guys that made all their money doing something else and can't seem to make it work in the sporting world, which is a much different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. Well, because m- look, I mean, w- CFL, NFL, whatever. Let's go with NFL. Most of the guys who are in the NFL owners have made their money in shipping or in business or in software like Bob Young or whatever else, they don't have a background. And and funny thing, I mean, look, I think if you and were- they're to, fans, and Bob Young admits he's a fan. I think if Bob Young had one thing that he probably looks back on and says, yeah, you know what, of all the things I've done on the team, that was one that was an interesting idea, but it was a swing and a miss completely. And that was back in his, I think his second year- when Ron Lancaster was general manager, they got rid of Ron Lancaster and gave the job to Rob Katz, who was a marketing guy, because Bob said at the time, in computers, you don't go back and do everything the way it's been done forever. You try and find new ways to do things. And I think we can try a new way and we can use analytics and use computer programs and other things. And that went, <laughs> I mean, that was, a, that was a, that was a whiff. All right. So you, that one, I think he would take on himself, I think. And he would say, yeah, that was, that one didn't work. So we went back to football guys as our yeah. people. But the other thing that I'm really interested about Bob, and I've never gotten, I've never been able to get the real sense is there are people, Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, you can tell by the way that he carries himself, by the way he is involved. Now he's very involved with that team. He's the general manager of that team. But he is a guy who strikes me as competitive enough that he would pull the wig off his mother in public if it meant that it gave him an extra three points in Sunday's game. I don't know how cutthroat competitive Bob Young is. I think he enjoys owning the team. I think he likes winning. And this is not a knock against him because sometimes the competitive people, the, the super competitive people are the ones who you don't want to be around. They're not good humans all the time. But I don't, I don't get the sense that Bob would do anything to win, that he would cut off, cut the legs out from anybody to win. I don't get the sense. I think he's a more human person than that. And that may or may not make it more difficult to build a champion. Well, I, I would do those things to win. I know you would. And um, that makes Bob Young, I'm sure, a far nicer person than I am. But it's, I mean, the old adage, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. 
Um, all those cliches come into play. So I, I have one question because you had the opportunity to do the research. You yep. had nine general managers? Six general managers. Nine head coaches? Seven head coaches. Uh, and only June Jones has at least a 500 record. How many um, presidents? Uh, two. Yep, two. And w- look, wherever the wherever it falls, I don't believe... As you pointed out, I don't believe Bob Young is watching over this team with a fine tooth comb. I think he has put people in charge of this team. I don't think he team. does day to day. I mean, guys like he that shows up on day. Sundays. He like or Saturdays, whenever he likes to watch the games when he can get there. He is a fan, as you say. I, I don't know that there's a bigger fan as far as an owner in this league than Bob Young is of his team. But my question, where we started this whole thing, is Bob Young a good owner. He has had little on-field success, but he has saved the team from obsolescence and from extinction. And I think on balance, probably a mediocre team is better than no team. Ask the Leafs. Yeah. uh, a, a, A team at all is better than no team. At some point though, it's got to be, I mean, and you're right, the Leafs, good example. I mean, it becomes incredibly frustrating for fans to the point, Don, where I was listening to the fifth quarter with Rick yesterday, and I was watching on Twitter after the game, and you ha- now have fans who have been so conditioned to accept mediocrity that they're on the fifth quarter and they're on Twitter going, great season, guys, way to go, we're with you, great season. It's like, you finished... Overall, you finished nine and eleven, including playoffs. By nobody's definition, is that a great season? And yet, in Hamilton, that seems to be okay. That's a great season. Like, imagine what would happen here if we ever put together a season like back in nineteen ninety nine or something, and you put together a. I mean, if we ever had a fifteen and three season with the Ticats, there would literally be people's heads popping off on Main Street and spinning around and hitting the ground. We wouldn't know what to do if we had a Calgary Stampeders type season. Here, we just, it's been so long since we've had a dominant season. We've been mediocre at best here in town with the Ticats. And occasionally, twice we've been to the Grey Cup, twice the team has been to the Grey Cup. And when I say we, I'm talking about the city. I'm not talking about we, me as a part of the team. I don't, but the city of Hamilton, the Ticats have twice been to the Grey Cup in this time. It's been mediocre. It, it depends on, and I, and, and I don't. I agree with everything you've said about Bob Young being a great guy, great for the community. I said he's a good owner because the team's still here. It depends on how <clears throat> you measure your success. I mean, I think they announced a sellout at every game this year. Yeah, well, okay, let's let's not even start in that. Their definition of attendance and my definition of attendance are two different things. Tickets distributed and attendance are two very different things. They announced, Don, almost a sellout in the uh, the game against Montreal or whatever it was. Maybe it was Toronto, whatever it was. At Ottawa. During the, the rainstorm. When there were about, well, the Canadian press said 3,000 people were there. And they announced almost as a sellout. So don't tell me about attendance. They dist- There were tickets out there. I don't know how they, I mean, yesterday was announced a, a, a sellout in Ottawa. And it was clear, even by the Ottawa Sun said it today, that there was not a sellout. There were a lot of empty seats. 
the CFL has to do something about how it gauges or how well, it uh, honestly builds credibility with this attendance thing. But anyway, back to your point. Jeff Hunt, the owner of the Ottawa um, Red, Blacks. Red Blacks, said You were going to say Rough Riders, weren't you? Uh, Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, well, look at this. Carry on. We rough, all, riders, we all, rough Riders a lot longer than it was the Red Blacks. Yeah, we all do it. So he said that the way their stadium is configured and the type of people, because they're searching for younger crowds and the way they watch sporting events is not the more traditional for older fans. Yep. And they have the largest standing rail slash bar like, in the league. Like in Hamilton with the. Yes. Yep. And said it goes right, apparently it goes almost right around. And he thinks you're going to see stadiums built more along those lines where people don't have to sit in their seats. But like at the Jays game with the uh, flight deck. I went there this summer and it was, you know, it was great. It was fun. It was, you just walk in. So, but if, but if, if you can put 2,500 people on the rail having a beer and a hot dog that don't have to sit in their seats, you're going to have empty seats. Doesn't mean they're not sold. I, I agree now, with you. if somebody says, if you announce you have 23,000 and the Canadian press say it's 3,000, I don't think there's 20,000 people having a beer. No. There, it, there is there are tickets distributed, and I'm not disputing I'm not disputing the Ticats or any other teams accounting on how many tickets have either been sold or awarded or given out or are part of season ticket packages or whatever else. Those tickets are out of the community. I I'm not taking any issue with their accounting. I believe that, but attendance means you are in attendance. It means you attend. You're at the game, sure. And attendance is a word that we, sh- I think, needs to be changed in the CFL because it is tickets and attendance are different things. Anyway, but your, your point is about, you, to get back to your point, because I took you way off track, is about what is success in the CFL at this point. Yeah. And look, if if building a business model that is good enough to keep the team alive until someday down the road... You can win a championship. If that is the sign of success, then Bob Young's a good owner and a success. If winning a championship in the time that mathematically they should, in a nine-team league, by average, by rights, you should win a championship every nine years. It's been 19 now. Yeah, well, I was going to say, let's assume that there's going to be teams get on a roll and you're not going to be right in the mix and the sport isn't perfect, so you don't win one every nine years, but when you go 19 years and you haven't won one, then something's start, missing. The, the math is now really stacked against you. And, and we don't have time to get into it because I got to go to a break. But I mean, the fact that, as you pointed out, that you could look so good a week ago and look like the team was maybe gelling, maybe you only have to win in the CFL, two games, sometimes three. The Ticats would have had to win three. But the fact that you only would have had to win three games, you come together at that moment, your quarterback gets hot, your receivers get hot, whatever else, you can, we've seen this with other teams before. And I can tell you though, that you know that Ticat fans, coaches, and everybody else after the blowout over um, BC. BC, I was going to say Vancouver, BC, you're going... I hope we didn't waste any points tonight. Turns out. Turns out. But look, so next year, um, I go back to my point. I would love for Bob Young to be able to take a sip from the cup, to be able to wear a gray cup ring. I think he deserves it. I think he's earned it. I think he's certainly, when I say paid his dues, I mean financially, literally paid his dues. And with patience. I just, 
I don't know. I, I, I feel badly for him, maybe for the fact that he doesn't seem to have that cutthroat, hyper-competitive, do-anything-to-win attitude that might actually have allowed for moves that might have put this team in that position. That's not a knock against him, as I said, as a human. I think he's a, that, that doesn't mean he's a bad human. It might, it probably means he's a better human, but I don't know that it necessarily puts you in the position where you are going to win those championships all the time. It'll happen eventually. I, 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 my real hope here, like a lot of other things in the city, I hope it happens while he's still alive and still owns the team and still with us and all the rest of this stuff. And I assume it will. Well, if the, um, if the proposed new franchise in the Maritimes comes in, and if they have the same type of success that Ottawa have. Let's not talk about that right now, because that would just be depressing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Don, you know what? We're talking about Canadian football. Let me continue on with that for just a couple more minutes. Not about the Ticats, but this weekend was also the national semifinals. You alluded to Canadian University football a moment ago. There are big, big, big problems with Canadian University football right now. Namely, that they don't have much television coverage. Uh, Cable 14 does the MAC games here, but I'm talking nationally. And the two games, well, they do three games. They get the Vanier Cup, they get the Mitchell Bowl and the Utech Bowl. The Mitchell and Utech are the two semifinals, and then next week is the Vanier Cup. So they get very little coverage across the board. And when they do go on the air, the Atlantic teams, which are horrible now, which are uncompetitive. Let me give you the numbers. In the last 10 seasons in the national semifinal game where the Atlantic team has either played Ontario, Quebec, or the Canada West Conference champion, they have been outscored 462 to 119. They're 0 and 10. Last five years, 0 and 5, outscored 254 to 48. It's getting worse. Last two years, 0 and 2, outscored 144 to 3. It is uncompetitive. It is horrible football. Within three minutes, the game is usually out of hand. And yet Sportsnet goes and sends all their crews and all their apparatus and goes and they're supposed to be broadcasting these games. Ratings came in. The overnight ratings came in. Uh, that game, the UTEC Bowl involving the Atlantic St. FX against Laval this year, drew 39,000 people, which honestly, you could go on the air and I don't know, you could have a live prostate exam on the air and it would draw more than 39,000 people. <laughs> Maybe not you, but somebody could. The point somebody is- Somebody with a better prostate? There is, th- that number is atrocious. That is an abysmal number. And this is something that should be being built. What, what can you do? Can you, can you tell a conference in Canadian University, you're not welcome to participate anymore because you're so bad? Well- it's structure, right? And as you know, the Real McCoys play for the world's oldest national hockey championship every year, and it's, six, it's a six-team tournament. And different reg- regions are allowed to participate. And oftentimes, one region will be a weak sister, and the route to get there is beating weaker sisters but they still come on a regular basis. But do they lose by the equivalent of like 15 no, to nothing they when they get to the Allen they Cup? Don't, they don't get embarrassed. But, you know, they're maybe going to get beat 6-1, and if they get really but lucky, fine. it's... But that's fine. That's a, that's a, that's a reasonably... That's a, a, that's a it's not credible game. It's, it's a credible game. Yeah, it's not embarrassing by any stretch of the imagination. But what frustrates you is if there are 
like three of the top ten teams in Canada may play in our league. It may be Stony Creek, Dundas, and Hamilton. And yet you can only send one representative, which would build for a better tournament and a better national championship. But it's not structured that way. And until the CIS decide that they want the very best teams to compete at that level, then that's what you're likely going to get. But I think the problem— By region, they let them com- let them participate, not compete. It says they participate. But the problem is not, to my mind, the problem is not with the having the very best teams, although that would be ideal. The problem is when you have such little exposure and you're trying to grow a game, you're trying to build up a game, and one of your three games is an unwatchable mess, year after year after year— you're doing the opposite of building it. Like if you, Don, if you, honestly, if your team, you're right. it's, it, if it, the Dundas Real McCoys were told, you get to have three games on national TV this year, pick your three games. And let's say there was a team in your league that was beyond atrocious and you had the team, your best ever team. Yep. Would you choose to show the game where you guys are going to win 15 to one, or would you choose the game that's going to be an exciting nail-biting game with lots of skill back and forth. I would hope you would choose that one because you go, when people watch that, they're going to stick around right to the end and they're going to be excited. I would choose the one that I knew we could win, but it'd be a decent game. Well, even I, that. I, I understand your point. I mean, you know, what you want is you want competitiveness. Let me give you another example. And I don't know how they, I don't know how in university football that they, that they start critiquing that unless the top two teams can inter, inter, um, interlock somehow. interlock with Ontario's better teams and say, you know what, if you're not competitive, you can't just arbitrarily never let them come back again. Well, until you you've got them, you've got to be better. You've, you've got to be better. You've got to have a better test to get there. If you, let me use another example, and I don't want to beat this horse too much, but if you, retroactively, if they could came to you and said, Don, with your league, we want to show, I know all the games are not t- taped, but if, if we could go back and pick any three games from the past to show on national TV to sell your product, I guarantee you one of the games that you would choose would be the night you guys won the Allen Cup in double overtime. Yes. I guarantee it was a close game. It was an exciting game. It was, I say, double overtime. You, again, would pick a competitive, exciting game. You would do the opposite of saying, we want to show the game that's 81 to 3 and 69 to nothing. Yeah, that game, when when you have a double overtime game for the national championship, if that's not going to help sell your product, then you're in big trouble. I mean, that's really the statement you want to make. And how do you possibly convince a national sports network that probably had to pay somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000 to set up their apparatus in Laval and take and send all their people there and broadcast the game and have all their engineers and everyone else, and the number is 39000 and that number is probably generous because I'm guessing that nobody other than Laval fans were still watching after about three minutes into the game. Yeah, no, I, I flipped that on. How do you possibly thing. convince that sports network that they want to sign a new lucrative or more lucrative or even sign a TV deal with you to continue with you in the future? I don't see the, any upside to this at all. No, the, the, the people that run the CIS have got to be spinning their wheels going, you know what, we want, we want a game of the week on. And if this is the stuff that we're showing and you're and, – and, and the, um, the viewership speaks volumes, 39,000 people – like there wasn't even anybody in that's family and friends. That's half. That's a little more than half of Rogers Center, for the entire country. Yeah, there are two answers I think to this. There may be more, but there's two obvious answers to this. One of them is 
that people have suggested that you have a super league in this country, the top eight or 10 football schools, and you find a sponsor and you can fly. So Laval will play Saskatchewan partway through the year and McMaster would play BC and Laval would play whatever. And it's only the top schools. And you do it like Premier League soccer, yep. where the team that's in the top, the top team from the B division, the next year gets to go up and the bottom, the bottom team from the top division drops down and you can work your way up or down. So you'll have a chance. The other thing is right now they have two bowls. So the top four teams, the winner from Ontario, Quebec, West and Atlantic all get in. Well, if you were to double that number then and rank them you could have all the Atlantic teams out of the mix before the TV cameras ever showed up and you wouldn't have to have this problem. And, and maybe someday down the road, the Atlantic teams are going to f- figure it out and turn it around, but it seems there is no possible way. Not when you're competing with Quebec with a CJAP program, not when you've got all these other problems and challenges. It, it looks like their time of being a competitive league is done. I don't know how you rebuild it either, uh, unless you get Greg Marshall to go down to the Atlantic uh, one of the Atlantic schools with the, the resume he's got that says, I'm going to rebuild this thing because any high school kid worth their salt now that was watching that, I'm thinking that the first place they're heading is not Atlantic Canada to play football. Uh, unless would, that's unless they're not that good and they want to play. Uh, no, you would, you would, unless, or they're not drawn top. If guys. your mom or your dad went to one of those schools and you yeah. wanted to follow in their foot. Yes. But no, to, to, to be able to build a program that is going to compete with Laval or to compete with Montreal or to compete with Western or on Goodyear's Mac. No. And it may well be population, right? Of course it is, but it's also difficulty getting people there. And yeah. you know, it's one thing we got to go to break. If I'm a high school student, I may not want to stay at home. I may want to go away for university. But if I'm from Hamilton, I can go to London and be away for university, but still get home for Christmas and still yeah. get home on weekends occasionally or whatever else. But if I'm at St. FX, it's a long way home with a flight and everything else. It's a different thing. You have to really want to get away. I can't want to want, can't want to win much. And there's that. Yeah. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Biggest shock in the NHL season to this point. Is it that Buffalo is fifth overall in the standings? Buffalo, which has been a getting their butt kicked team for about four or five years now. They're now fifth in the standings. The fact that the New York Islanders minus John Tavares are in a playoff position or the fact that the Pittsburgh Penguins are second last in the standings right now. What's the biggest shock out of that? Penguins second last. Just because that's Sydney and you don't expect Sydney there? Because they're perennial competitors for the Stanley Cup, and you expect more. I mean, there's always going to be a surprise team. Buffalo, I don't know where that came from because I don't follow the Sabres that closely. The Islanders, I think, with Lou Lamorello and uh, hiring Barry Trotz, who's had success absolutely everywhere he goes, really speaks volumes to the fact that coaching can matter, and I don't think it always matters, but it can matter. And because there have been some brilliant coaches not do well, Joel Quenville's a, a brilliant coach, and he's out of Chicago. But I would say uh, that uh, that Penguins being second last, and the Sabers finding a way to do as well as they are, and you know Vancouver's doing all right, and Vancouver. so is Ottawa. Well, Ottawa's 
Ottawa's begun to slide. I mean, and, if you're and gonna, the Habs are doing the Montreal I was because they were supposed to be doormats. Yeah, I was going to put Montreal in that list. There was a lot of things I could have put in that list. There was, I mean, St. Louis was supposed to be a contender yep. this year. They're right near the bottom. Vegas was in the finals last year. They're right at the bottom of the league. Well, Vegas for an expansion team. I know, but they were. They didn't know they were expansion they didn't team know. last year. They 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 now they know. They are looking like an expansion team all of a sudden this year. Well, and they're living off their laurels. They played a big run last year. But, Don, you know what? There are, this year in the NHL, there are probably six or seven or eight, and this is just some of the ones we've talked about, compelling storylines going on right now, just with the fact that this is like you put the NHL into a blender and it was like, oh, that's what came out. Well, that's why Gary Batman's in the Hall of Fame, because <laughs> it's a salary cap and he's created league balance. All right. All right. Another Gary Batman pat on the back. We'll get a team here in Hamilton somehow. Eventually. Now, Don, they're, now they're a billion dollars Canadian. I think we're done. Don will schmooze Gary Bettman into finally uh, giving us a team. If you can do that, then I want you to come back here and have two tickets all week for those games too. I, I can do that. It's just there's going to have to be 76 teams in the league by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we have to find a billionaire or two from Hamilton I'm to jump be in. 86. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.